if you're not used to failure, it sucks at the beginning. But then you get used to being a loser, and then it's pretty nice. Hello, my name is Kate, and this is She Blinded Me With Science. Today is all about the science of improvisation and improvisation in science. We With me today is Elaine Sevier. Hello. Who runs a creativity-centered nonprofit, and we're going to learn more about Elaine and their work in a bit. Uh, I want to start with an example of improv by playing a clip from this quasi-improv show from the 1980s. It's called Ask Dr. Science. Have you ever heard of this? I have not. Good. I've been in a rabbit hole about this. So I say quasi-improv because the questions that Dr. Science answers are solicited from the audience in advance, and then he improvises the answers. So here's that. It's time once again to Ask Dr. Science. So let's ask Dr. Science. That's me. Remember, he knows more than you do. That's right. Dear Dr. Science, writes Phil Jennings from St. Cloud, Minnesota, if scientists are so smart, why do they say things like Quark and Google? You know, your average scientist tends to be a person who never really had a childhood. While others were talking baby talk and engaging in the innocent games children play, most of your future scientists were locked in a basement laboratory sweating over a slide roll and a Bunsen burner. Small wonder that when finally given a measure of freedom and respectability, Scientists choose to get playful. Allow them their fun. Remember what a grumpy scientist can do with a few grams of plutonium, a harbored grudge, and a nursed resentment? Thank you, Dr. Science. Send your science questions to Ask Dr. Science. Remember, he's not a real doctor. I have a master's degree in science. So now that I've rationalized a reason to play a clip of Ask Dr. Science on the show, uh, we're going to talk about the science of improvisation. So Elaine, you have a background in neuroscience. That's correct. Uh, have you heard of Charles Lim? I have not. Okay, well, I'll, t I'll tell you about him. Charles Lim is a surgeon and a neuroscience researcher who studies creativity. He worked on a study with neurologist Alan Braun, where they did fMRI imaging of jazz musicians while they improvised on a little keyboard that could fit safely inside the imaging machine. Uh, and then they compared the brain activity between when the musician was playing the improv was improvising versus playing a memorized piece. And through these comparisons, Lim hypothesized that two changes in the frontal cortex were required for creativity. Uh, and I'm going to say a lot of brain words now, but uh, it'll be summarized later for anyone who doesn't have a background in neuroscience. Uh, these two changes were activation of the medial prefrontal cortex, which is a, supposedly associated with self-expression, and deactivation of the lateral prefrontal cortex, which supposedly is associated with self-monitoring. And here's a excerpt from Lim's TED Talk in 2010 explaining this a little better than I could. 
these are multifunctional areas of the brain. As I like to say, these are not the jazz areas of the brain. Right? They, they do a whole host of things that have to do with uh, self-reflection, introspection, working memory, and so forth. Really, consciousness is seated in the frontal lobe. But we have this combination of an area that's thought to be involved in self-monitoring turning off and this area that's thought to be autobiographical or self-expressive turning on. And we think, at least in this preliminary, you know, it's, it's one study. It's, it's probably wrong, but it's one study. Uh, we think that... At least a reasonable hypothesis is that to be creative, you have to have this weird dissociation in your frontal lobe. One area turns on and a big area shuts off so that you're not inhibited, so that you're willing to make mistakes, so that you're not constantly shutting down all of these new generative impulses. Uh, and in later studies, he found similar results to the jazz musicians when he did the same thing with freestyle rappers and also with theatrical improvisers. Uh, I don't, I'm not sure how you do theatrical improv improvisation inside an fMRI. Yeah, actually, this does sound familiar because I remember hearing about this study and imagining like the teeny tiny piano that they had to fit somehow inside that uh, fMRI machine. So yeah, I don't know about the theatrical performances, but I'm sure they came up with some some strategy. <laughs> yeah, I think they gave them a prompt and then just had them talk about the prompt for a while. But I don't know what they compared that to, whether they had them like memorize a script or something like that. But the point is they found similar differences in brain activity. Uh, currently, I don't know of any evidence of creativity in non-human animals. When I started writing the story, I wanted to write about uh, you work with creativity. So I wanted to find a story about creativity in non-humans. And there really isn't any evidence of that, any uh, supposedly create creative behavior like bowerbird nests has other explanations like attracting a mate. Um, and so the evidence of creativity in non-human animals isn't really there. Um, and that's I think that's partially because the scientific definition of creativity is very vague. Uh, Emily Schubert in the journal Frontiers in Neuroscience defines creativity as a process that leads to a novel and useful outcome. What do you think of that definition? Um, I think that my dogs exhibit some of that definition. They definitely figure out how to do weird things to have my one dog in particular novel outcomes. But I think that, um, I mean, for one, it's kind of beautiful to imagine creativity more so in like the urge to express yourself, like the, the jazz study was talking about this, like deep drive to express yourself. Um, I think that's a really beautiful de de definition of creativity, but on the more like operational side, just like, yes, the act of creating something new uh, is probably easier to, you know, compare across different people. That's kind of the outcome versus the intention of, of creativity, I guess. The part of this definition that I'm stuck on is uh, ha something having to be both novel and useful. Hmm. So, like, is jazz improvisation useful? Does that fit the definition? Because that's obviously creative, but does it fit this, like, operational definition? No, I think that's a really good point. And I think, you know, it's a philosophical question to what extent is art useful. I think people find it emotionally necessary even. But to say it's useful, it doesn't really feel like the right word. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then in terms of trying to find examples of creativity in non-humans, which I think probably exists, it's just really hard to scientifically study. Uh, when another crow figures out how to get a piece of food out of a tube by displacing the volume with rocks, is that a novel outcome, even though other crows have done that before? 
If it's novel for the crow, like if that crow hadn't done it before? Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm not sure. Like, if if crows using tools could be an example of creativity, that's definitely a useful outcome. But is it novel when it's not the first time that happened? Yeah, I mean, I think to me there's a difference between, like, creative problem solving. Like, you need to come up with a solution. Like, you have a problem and you need a solution that's not obvious to you. And you have to kind of come up with something that seems creative versus kind of creativity as, like, a deeper trait or experience. To me, they feel different somehow. I think it would be interesting to see a reversed behavioral study, um, probably in primates, where instead of seeing what areas of the brain are in use during a particular activity like jazz improv, what activities that a primate could do causes a similar creative neural pattern. Right, like an activity where if the def- if the, what they thought was happening in humans is that they're simultaneously being expressive um, – and needing to suppress their inhibition. So some kind of uninhibited behavior that was kind of just in, that wasn't, I mean, in some ways I think of creativity as almost almost non-useful. Like you're just doing it for the sake of doing it rather than you're, you're needing a particular outcome, like a useful outcome. Right. In which case it might be impossible to study in a lab setting because animal uh, studies are all about making the animal do the thing and giving it motivation to do that thing. Yeah, very controlled. Yeah. That sound means that it's time to test that dorsal light response. When we come back, we'll talk more with Elaine about their work. Ukulele guy living ukulele life. Ukulele every day, ukulele every night. But one day as I was plucking out a tune, I heard the news saying ukulele doom was falling from the sky. Reporting live, run for your life. The threat appears, the end is nigh. It's writer's block. Yeah, it's writer's block. We've been invaded far and wide. What a fright, we're all terrified of this writer's block. It's writer's block. I looked out the window and saw that it was true. The block had taken over and ruined the whole groove. All the paper was blank, all the pencils were chewed. Not a tune in the air and not a rhythm to lose. I did a superhero suit, I put on my good shoes. Strap my yuka to my back and grab my magic kazoo. Sunglasses like a fire, I be looking all cool. Stepped out the front door to show this block what I can do. Immediately got encircled by worries. My uninhibited fists took them out in a flurry. Self-doubt and guilt tried to scurry away. But I said yes way and took them out with a dose of no hurry. News folks saying that no one can control it, but I'll pop it with hip-hop, electro-rock and roll in this writer's block. Yeah, this writer's block. It's posting up abstract Tyrannosaurus, but I'll bust it up with every trick in my thesaurus. This writer's block. Yeah, this writer's block. Distractions and chores were asking for war, but my proactive attitude was more than they bargained for. Negative self-talk with my head in the deadlock, but I tossed him and bopped him with a body-positive karate chop. Anxiety attacked with weaponized depression, decided in the moment that I would teach him a lesson. Provided my kazoo possessing hypersonic compression waves, put him for rest and that's the end of the session. All of the sudden, it was eerily quiet. I unstrapped my four-string and prepared for a riot. Turned and looked back at the path I'd been driving. There were cars for the negative reinforcements arriving. 
And then emerging from the passenger side, I spy the smiling mastermind of this rattles plug. Yes, rattles plug. I see OG, oh me, oh my, procrastination personified. It's rattles plug. Turned to stone as he made his approach Removing his wireless Bluetooth headphones A gloating with a monologue Droning in monotone That his forces were many and I was alone He turned up my tongue in a way unconventional Drums started going crazy No way to do an instrumental I was losing the beat and couldn't find a word to rhyme with So I pulled out the only weapon I had left I went la 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 Check it out Of supreme linguistic flow current I was charging up a ukulele powered chord final blast when the master of slackers threw up the white flag He said alas indigo I confess you succeeded in making a mess of my writer's block But as his figure disappeared into mist he whispered this isn't the last you'll hear on the writer's block Welcome back. This is still She Blinded Me with Science, and I am still your host, Kate. And still with me in the booth is Elaine. Hi, Hello. Elaine. Hello. Hello. Uh, so now we're going to talk with Elaine uh, more directly about what she's been doing with her life. Uh, Elaine is the president of Research Theory, a nonprofit organization with the goal of fostering creativity and innovation in science and in scientists. So can you tell us a bit about your background and your academic journey? Yeah, so my background is in neuroscience. I finished my PhD in neuroscience in December of 2021. Um, and the work that I did in, in science was super basic science oriented, kind of, um, the lab that I was in primarily studied development, how do cells in the brain get wired up during development? Uh, my co-founder, uh, who's also my husband, Stuart Sevier, he has a background in physics and biophysics. So we both approach it from a very academic standpoint where our time in academia made us really believe in academia as an institution and the need for really kind of curiosity-driven blue sky uh, research and how impactful that can be that you just don't know where the next big innovation is going to come from in advance. 
Um, but it also made us see how some aspects of the culture don't always support that kind of really curiosity-driven creative work and how sometimes it, that can really take a toll on the people who are, are doing science. So we both decided to leave academia and start this new organization to try and make a positive impact. Do you have any specific examples that made you think, oh, I need to do something to help change this? I think it was, I mean, for one, there's a kind of a personal motivation. I mean, the statistics around mental health in academia are really troubling, you know, that about half of graduate students and postdocs are are dealing with moderate to severe depression. That's really concerning, both for a human perspective, also for like the sustainability of academia, like who are people going to be just dropping out because this is not a sustainable career path for people. And then from the science perspective, it means that about half of the workforce is dealing with a serious mental health condition. And so where is that creative work going to come from if the people are really struggling? So probably that's our own experiences. And then also kind of from the outside perspective, thinking about funding structures that are in place, you know, like if you know you need to be in the 12th percentile to get that NIH grant and you need everybody on the committee to give you that perfect score in order to get funded, well, then you need to write about something that everybody can agree is likely going to work. And that's not where the really creative work comes from. That's where like kind of incremental or flashy work comes from. So it's all about those incentives, what's driving people to do the kind of work that they're doing. So in term, I definitely agree that there's a crisis of mental health in academia because we're expected to work as much as we can and not get paid as much as that's worth. Um, but in terms, in terms of a... Uh, crisis of declining innovation uh, is that the like logic line that you're dra- that you're drawing between those things? So there's also kind of more academic research on it, um, but those are kind of like our um, explanations for why these trends are happening. Because there's also this line of academic work that comes from. A, a subset of economists and computational social scientists who you know consider that what they're doing is kind of meta science or the science of science, trying cool. to understand what makes science progress happen. And they look at a variety of metrics to try and understand how innovative is science, how disruptive is science, and how are those trends changing over time. And they look at anything from like real world outcomes, like mortality rates of cancer and crop yields, you know, like really like on the ground, how is science making an impact in in our lives? Um, all the way to more looking at papers, they'll try and look at things like, look at the abstract of a paper and be like, oh, this combination of words has never been used before. Oh, this paper referenced two papers that have never been cited together before. That's a more you know, disruptive paper kind of thing. So you can get clever about how you try and measure the creativity of papers besides just like the impact factor of the journal. And in general, this work has found negative trends over time. So like the, the one paper that's called, uh, like, are good ideas harder to find? They looked at real-world outcomes like cancer mortality rates and crop yields, and they found the kind of across fields, the rate of improvement um, in those metrics is declining at a rate of about 5% per year over the last century. So amazing gains are being made, but they're happening more slowly than they were before. And so why is that is an open question, um, but we think it has a lot to do with the culture of science. And do you think that it's the same trend in academic versus in industry science? 
So I think to some extent, yes, like a lot of those kind of science of science papers, they look at things like patents. It's more kind of industry focused. On the other hand, I have no experience in industry. I think the pressures they're facing are quite different. Um, so I'm not really sure to what extent it applies. But I think a lot of the outcomes are similar. Okay. Um so in, in research theory, which is the name of your organization, if I forgot to say that. No, I said it. I see it in my script. Okay. <laughs> uh, how do you – so I love I love that data. I didn't know that there was so much data behind this idea of declining innovation. Um, is that related to how you convinced research institutions that they should uh, give you guys money to show scientists how to do – more creative things? Partially, yes. Like, that is kind of the intellectual backing. On the other hand, I think when we talk to institutions, professors, they are feeling all of these tensions. Like, they are they're feeling these things about, like, I feel like my graduate students are struggling. I feel like I'm not able to be as productive as I want. So we're actually more focusing on how we can prove... They're more convinced that the problem is real. So we're really focusing on how we can prove, even to ourselves, that the programs that we are trying to build are effective. And so part of that is something that we haven't rolled out yet, but we've been working on internally, which is we want to link people who go through our workshops. We want to show, use some of those science of science metrics and show that long term, their science like really is mm -hmm. more creative. And short term, we're building a proxy to be able to have people take this measurement before and after they do the workshop. And so we're building... Um, basically a video game that people can play that's meant to measure like creativity and resilience Whoa. is kind of this like <laughs> open world building problem that's linked back to kind of more validated tests of creativity and things like like convergent thinking, divergent thinking mm -hmm. like that. So this video game is something we're really excited about and we hope we'll be ready to test later this spring. So how good at Minecraft are you? Actually, Minecraft <laughs> was a very legit inspiration. Yeah, like a Minecraft type world building problem. Yeah, basically get good at Minecraft and you'll ace our test. Great, because <laughs> that's the point is to ace the test. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I'm asking you these questions about like, why is what you're doing worth the time and the money? But I'm already on board. I've been participating in the pilot program of, of the course here at UT, along with several other students and faculty. Uh, and the final session is this week, and we have the assignment to bring in a real research pro problem that we're working on and then to apply the improv ideas that we've been learning to that problem. And I don't know what that's going to look like because uh, everybody in this course studies very different things, very technical things. Uh, I study manganese neurotoxicity, and I don't know how, uh, you know, th uh, throwing balls to people in a circle uh, at random patterns can help make create a solution to a question like, uh, does this particular protein have this effect in this part of the brain? Yeah. Um, so my question is, do you have any examples of technical research problems that could benefit or have benefited from the improv mindset that you're pushing? Yeah. So first of all, I think a lot of our goal um, 
in terms of what people are taking away from the course is feeling confident that they can kind of take these skills and apply them to their work. And a lot of that means just the ability to kind of take the problem or the question that you're thinking about and like shake it up in your mind and kind of have a fresh perspective on it that maybe you've gotten locked into thinking about it a certain way and that when we throw a bunch of stimuli at you and you're forced to throw a ball around, do something kind of silly, it might kind of snap you into a different perspective, that kind of fresh perspective that might help, you know, unlock that question. An example I'll give comes from um, a systems biology professor at the Weizmann Institute, Uri Elon, who is a big proponent of improv, and he, like, makes his own graduate students do improv training uh, because it's been very impactful for him in his research. Yeah, and so he gives an example. He has a great TED Talk called Why Truly Innovative Research Demands a Leap into the Unknown that I highly recommend um, that lays a lot of uh, the groundwork for kind of what we're trying to do. And he gives an example of they were stuck on this problem for over a year of trying to basically understand this really complicated network of gene expression. So they're looking at all these molecules and they just like don't understand how they can relate to each other. It just seems really complicated. And they, you know, this is an obvious example with improv. Like they, he talks about the technique, like yes and, and being able to have creative conversations and just like shut down that judging brain where you, you hear an idea that like sounds dumb mm-hmm. or you've done it before and you just like say that won't work for all these that, reasons. That lateral prefrontal cortex. That lateral prefrontal, <laughs> like let's get some of that medial prefrontal yeah. cortex involved, you know. So being able to just like shut down the judging brain and just like try something new. And so he had a student who said, well, let's draw it on a piece of paper. And even though they'd done that before, you know, Uri said, yes, and let's like make it really big. Let's draw it as big as we can. And another person said, yes, and we should print it on one of those like gigantic architecture, you know, the blueprint Mm. pages that people do. And they were able to like track down a printer that could actually do this. And they printed out this massive thing and they were looking at it and they realized from kind of that 10,000-foot view looking down on the whole network, what they were seeing, which looked very complicated, actually was just multiple simple little repeated patterns that they called motifs. And this was the idea of like a gene regulatory motif, which was, you know, this, this paper ended up getting thousands of citations and was a major breakthrough. And so I think there's lots of ways where the improv techniques we're using, you can adapt in your work. Like, so Stuart, my co-founder, he studied DNA mechanics and he would like play with a rope, you know, the prop of like he went to Home Depot and got a rope to just play with the DNA because he wanted to understand how the structure of DNA might influence gene expression. And he would give talks and he would like hand out rope to people so that they could play with it. So a lot of it is just being open. A lot of it is a spirit of play and really just trying to do anything that will make you, you know, take the world from a different point of view. So not necessarily like the exact improv games, but more practicing a different, uh, reinforcing different uh, neural networks to help think about different problems. Yeah, I mean, it's just crazy that scientists go through t- a decade of training between graduate school and postdoc, and no one ever really talks about, like, how should you think creatively? Mm-hmm. Not to mention the whole kind of resilience, like, just the courage and faith that, like, you'll figure something out, which I think speaks to that mental health piece a lot. Um, but, yeah, a lot more of the just keep trying, you know, and what what to do, but more concretely than just keep trying, okay, what are specific things you can do when you feel stuck? Mm-hmm. Uh, in the interest of time, I'm going to um, move on to my next question, last question. Uh, do you have any radio-friendly improv games that we could try? 
Yeah, uh, we could play a game called I Know I Wonder that we did in class. Okay. Okay, so the way this is a game that's good for just like kind of drumming up a little curiosity. Um, so, Kate, what's a topic that we both know something about, but we don't know everything about? Um, psychology. Okay, psychology. Okay, so we'll go back and forth like four or five times or something, and we'll start, we'll like each say a sentence that we'll start with the words I know, and we'll say something that we know about psychology. So I can go first. I know that psychology is a department in most universities. I know that psychology is sometimes offered in high school classes. I know that psychology... um, Got a lot of inspiration and work done by Sigmund Freud. I know that a lot of the work that Sigmund Freud did in psychology has since been debunked. I know that as well. (laughs) And I know um, that uh, psychology can help us understand ourselves better. Okay, so that so we did that round, and now we'll do it a second time. But instead, we're going to start each sentence uh, with the words, I wonder. Okay, so do you want to go first? Let's see. I wonder if we will one day merge the fields of psychology and neuroscience. I wonder um, who are the giants of psychology today? I wonder what the most fringe, weird research going on in psychology is. Yeah, and I wonder whether that involves psychedelics. Uh, And I wonder whether there's any psychedelic research happening with animals. Yeah. Okay. So that's a little baby, you know, uh, improv game. And and both of these kind of mindsets are useful. So I know is really good for establishing fundamentals, understanding like our landscape of knowledge, maybe explaining something to someone. But I wonder is good. It kind of takes the pressure off. You kind of sit back, think about it a little more and kind of build some of that curiosity. So just even knowing the difference between when are you saying I know and when are you saying I wonder, I think can be helpful. Oh, my cue. Hmm. We're improvising, people. We're improvising. I know what that sound means. Uh, it means I got to go update my lab book, and we'll be back in a few minutes.
name's Thomas, I'm a dog walker on the moon. quote was by Karam Gural, a graduate student in the Mukhapadiye lab. Share your science and lab quotes with me to be featured at the top of the show. While I was testing a dorsal light response, you heard Versus the Block by Indigo Starbeam. When I went to update my lab book, you heard Improv by Sleepover Club. Thank you to Elaine Sevier for being on the show. Thank you for having me. If you have questions, comments, or confusion, connect with me via email at sciencekvrx at utexas.edu or drop me a message on Instagram at sciencekvrx. Audio assets were produced by Indigo Starbeam. You can find him wherever you stream music. Thanks for listening. And remember, consistency is key in rodent behavior assays. If there's cat hair on your clothes the first time, there should be cat hair on your clothes every time. My eyes! <laughs>